0: coming up on this episode of the courage to change
1: there was no way for me to to hide it anymore and I I had a pretty severe emotional break is what happened you know at the time I was still doing construction work, I've worked in recovery off and on since 2002, but at the time I was just doing construction and you know, I was going to work and having to go get in my car and cry. Like I couldn't hold it together. Like I just couldn't fucking keep it inside. And it was just like coming out and coming out in these waves. And I was just, I never felt anything like that. I just never felt that level of sadness and sorrow and pain. I was in so much pain. And I remember. You know, after a couple of days, I I don't know how to function. And I call my sponsor. He's an old man. He's got like 30 years. Love him. And he's like, so let's write a four step about it. And I was like, that ain't it. Like a four step isn't gonna get me where I need to be with this.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Today we have my friend, Mescal Wasalewski. Mescal was born in England and moved to Santa Monica at age eight in the height of the Dogtown era. Mescal grew up surrounded by skate and surf culture and also gang and drug culture. All this leading to him becoming, as he describes it, a troubled, poor latchkey kid of the eighties. Mescal got sober in his 20s, but 18 years later found his sobriety threatened when past trauma and unresolved mental health issues could no longer be contained. With the help of friends and treatment, he's been able to wade through these challenges, going to grad school for social work and finding a meaningful relationship in the process. Mescal's story is an important one. In it, we hear about what can happen when we treat the addiction without addressing the underlying mental health pieces. His story is one of continuing to push and do the hard work even when things have felt like they should be getting easier. I loved my chance to talk to him. I hope you all enjoy this as much as I did. Mescal is an awesome guy and he's been through a lot and he shows us that you can stay sober even if you are struggling and dealing with mental health things. So you don't have to pick up a drink or a drug in order to get help for long-term sobriety. So enjoy Mescal. Let's do this. All right, Ms. Gal, thank you for being here. I'm really excited for this and excited for you to tell your story. And I know that talking about yourself is not your favorite thing. So appreciate you being willing to do it. Can you tell me a little bit about your how long you've been sober, where you live, and a little bit about what it was like when you were growing up?
1: So uh, where I live is in Los Angeles. I live in the uh, San Fernando Valley currently, which is probably a fate worse than death for someone like me. I grew up on the beach. Uh, So it's also like 9 million degrees out here already. It's March, but it is what it is. I've been sober for 25 years. March 4th was my uh, sober anniversary or birthday, depending on which coast you're on. I was 26 when I got sober and a little bit about what it was like. You know, obviously I was thinking a lot about this prior to, right? Just like anyone else in the shower before I go to bed keeps me up. Fun stuff like that, right? Like, let me just obsess on how I can sound articulate and clever and smart and then come across like a complete moron when I actually get in front of the camera. But I think prior to my birth is interesting only because my mother was living in Venice Beach in the late 60s, hippie, drug user, met my father who's English on the boardwalk and they started a relationship. He ended up moving back to England. She followed him not too long after and uh, they got married and she became pregnant with me and he immediately moved her out to the country and, was like okay cool so you're my wife and you can clean the house while I'm at work and my mom was you know this free spirited hippie you know druggy all of the things that happened in the in the 60s and she basically bailed before I was even born she left she was like I'm out I'm not doing this and she she moved. was
0: pregnant when this happened
1: yeah, yeah and was my
0: brother Strider was he there yet
1: no my brother's younger than me
0: Oh, oh, he's younger. than Okay.
1: Yeah. So I'm the firstborn and my mom left, went back to London. And shortly after, while still pregnant with me, met my stepfather, who was my brother's father. He was the connect. He showed up to sell some drugs to her and her friend. And, you know, she didn't talk a lot about her past. Uh, A lot of that is just like traumatic responses. She just had a hard time kind of even discussing the good times because it always brought up all these other memories. But uh, she did mention that he walked in, he had some long brown curly hair, he was wearing a suit and but he was carrying a briefcase full of drugs. And my mom was like, that's the dude, <laughs> right?
0: I'm not going to lie. I agree with that decision. A suit and a briefcase, but the briefcase has drugs. Seems- mean, it hits all the highlights.
1: Listen, I'm just a businessman walking down the street. I don't know why this is Back- a problem. I, I have, have my
0: business in my briefcase.
1: Yeah. It's like uh, the big Lebowski. What was in the briefcase? <laughs> you know, papers and stuff man and so that became my stepfather he was actually present for my birth so he was really like my dad and my brother came along a couple years later actually born in california they moved back to the states and my brother was born up north northern california and then my stepfather was asked to leave by the the local authorities they actually wrote him a letter telling him he was being deported they literally asked him to meet at the pan am Counter at the airport on this date and you will be heading back to England. And, it's a uh, very
0: proper place. Deportation
1: handwritten. I mean, it's you know, 72, 73, like you know, it was just a long time ago. And so we moved back to England, and you know, he did what he did and went to prison again. And that was
0: to be clear, you, your brother, your mom, you follow him after he gets deported. Okay. And you guys all go to England. We do. And do you remember that? Like, do you, is that
1: no? I was, I was two at the time. So there's not a lot of memory of that part for me. I don't have a lot of memories of. Of life with him he was in prison a lot for a short period he was in my life you know because the funny thing is is like the only thing that links me and my brother to him is that we both eat incredibly fast
0: i mean <laughs> so he, uh, maybe i'm just, related to him too <laughs>
1: maybe and i don't know if it was like a prison thing so like when he's prison he's just like eating real quick so you know me and my brother would try to race him apparently and so both my brother and i still to this day eat incredibly fast like we're always the first ones on Everyone at the table is like taking their first bite and we're like, so uh dessert, but yeah, that's pretty much the only thing I really recall other than like some violence around some drug issues and stuff with, you know, some domestic violence stuff that is kind of seared in my brain that. So I don't really have a lot of good memories from him. And by the time I was seven, he went to prison again and my mom left. She was like, I'm done.
0: And your bio dad, he's just not in this picture, right?
1: I think I, I probably saw him maybe once or twice, three times tops. He had moved to Scotland. He was not really present. And after I'm 11, I never hear another word from him. Not one time. So yeah, seven, he goes to prison again. My mom's like living in England. It's fucking freezing. She's got two kids. She's on the dole, which is basically welfare in England. And she's like, I'm leaving. And so we moved back to los angeles and lived with her friend who had two kids who were our age in her friend's parents house with her brother there was like nine people in this house in westchester and you know drugs and alcohol like i mean there hasn't been a time in my life they weren't present and weren't like a huge part of what was happening yeah in every way possible so even when we're living here we're with my mom's friends we're all living in her friend's parents house with all these kids and it's the late 70s and there's a lot of hair and a lot of drugs and a lot of people. And we were only there a short time and we moved, within a year we moved to Santa Monica in about 1979. We moved in Santa Monica, California and it was right at the tail end of the dog down era. So, you know, Tony Alva, Jay Adams, Stacy Peralta, all those guys, they were all still around. They were basically celebrities on in every way possible. And they influenced every aspect of my life, of my brother's life, of everyone in the neighborhood where I grew up. I mean, it was just, it was everything to us. Surfing, skateboarding, and everything that that came with that was the most important thing in our lives. And it's interesting because that's really where I leaned into a male role model who was really pretty negative. (laughs) I wanted to be Jay Adams. I just really did. And Jay... Of
0: all the guys? Yeah. Like that one's definitely...
1: Yeah. I equate it to like being a kid and playing basketball with your friends and everyone's like Magic or Bird or Jordan or LeBron or whomever. You know, people want to do TA, Stacey, whatever. I was like, oh, I want to be Jay. (laughs) I just wanted to be Jay. I wanted to surf like him.
0: I'm only thinking of him like in his... 50s, right? Because that's how I know him. So I guess I'm not thinking of him in his prime.
1: Yeah. I mean, in his prime, he was something. I mean, he was, in my opinion, the best of them surfing and skateboarding. And his style was everything. I mean, we emulated it to the nth degree. I mean, you were in the water, you were trying to be like him, you're on a skateboard, you're trying to be like him, do the things he was doing. And he also really loved punk rock. (laughs) He also loved drugs. He loved alcohol and he loved violence. And it turns out I liked all those things a lot, too. Not as much the violence part, but all the rest of it, I was really into. (laughs) I really was about it. And when I was 11, my brother and I flew to England to spend Christmas with his dad. He had gotten out of prison and we spent Christmas with him. And he went out one evening to go get Chinese food. And he left his friend there watching us who was asleep on the couch. And while they were gone, police showed up with a warrant and raided the house. And you know, for me and my brother, yeah, I can't really speak for my brother, but I can say for myself, it was really, really traumatic to like watch them handcuff my father. At my the only dad I'd ever known and take him away to prison my actual real father somehow was called and he's the one that brought us to the airport the next day to fly home and that was the last time I ever spoke to him and my stepfather I spoke to two other times in my entire life uh, they just that was it my mom was like they're done
0: yeah I mean naturally
1: yeah she sent her kids you know 8,000 miles to sit in a house getting raided
0: yeah no 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 I mean that, should, that would be
1: Yeah. And I think that is also, it was right around that time or shortly after that, like, I really started to lean in kind of the dark side. You know, up to that point, I was a straight A student. I skipped a couple grades. You know, I really, that was a big part of my identity was like being the smart kid. And once that happened, I ended up going to middle school at, you know, a school on the other side of the city with you know, all the well-to-do kids, I was definitely not a well-to-do kid. I was a welfare kid. You know, we lived on food stamps and welfare and and section eight subsidies. And it was, uh, you know, I never really even knew I was poor until I went to this school. And I was like, Oh, Got it. I'm poor because you told me that a lot. You know.
0: Why did you go to that school? Like why not stay at the other one?
1: My mom wanted me to go there because she thought I'd get a better education. She saw, you know, sending me there as an opportunity for me to get a better opportunity. Education wise, you know, influence, right? You make connections with people and who are doing better and, and have more opportunities and you know, really what it did was it just reinforced a lot of the insecurities I already had more than anything. It just, uh, I really struggled there. And I remember I met at the time who would become one of my best friends there he was uh you know he wore a he had black trench coat he was like this little punker kid and uh he came up to me one day he's like hey what are you doing i was like going to class he's like do you want to bail and i was like oh okay and that was the first time i ever did school and we walked into the alley and smoked some weed which i had tried before but never really had gotten high or anything but then like we got high and then we went down wilshire boulevard in santa monica and at the time you could use any key to pop the parking meters you could just use key and open it and take all the coins out and so we did that up at the whole street and we went to this bagel shop and ate a bunch of food and I was like
0: you're like you are my man
1: best friend I've ever had and you know it's not his fault it definitely but that was kind of like where it was like all right we're going off the deep end we're going the other way and so I really did and you know a couple years later they asked me to leave that school I ended up finally getting to the school I wanted to be at you know where all my friends were and by then it was already too late I was 13 and I was drinking as often as I could and smoking weed constantly And, you know, I had started smoking cigarettes because I thought it was super cool. And that's that's where I really just got I got bad quick. I mean, at 14, there was an all ages nightclub in Santa Monica called 321. And I was going there 34 times a week, sneaking out of my house, drinking, you know, night train and Thunderbird and, you know, really classy liquor that, you know basically what homeless people drank and uh, i remember the night train specifically we used to just call it blackout in the bottle you know it was a dollar 29 it was a nice big bottle you drank one of those and you just didn't know what was going to happen and uh, that's at 13 14
0: and the drugs were it was just like whatever was available
1: yeah you know uh as, far as drug wise, you know, I was obviously I was smoking weed all the time. I ever, I had taken some weed from my mom because she sold weed. And uh so I had taken some, but I didn't know to put it in a baggie. I didn't know what you were supposed to do with it. And I had left it in a drawer and it kind of dried out. She found it and she wasn't mad that I had weed. She was mad because she said it was shitty weed. <laughs> and so she broke out her bag. She's like, If you need weed, you know, don't take this shitty crap. And I I didn't have the heart to tell her it was actually her weed, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, in 81, 82, pretty much all weed was pretty shitty. There was it wasn't a whole lot of good weed back oh, then.
0: comparatively, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so if that gives you an indication of what it was like, I could smoke weed and drink in my house when I was 13 years old, my mom. And I could have my friends over and I could have girls over. All of that was acceptable. My mom was one of those like hippie, kind of like, well, if he's here and he's doing it, at least I know he's safe. And what do you think was, about that? Well, in retrospect, it was a horrible idea. <laughs> it was terrible. I have three nephews, as you know, one's about to be 15, but I look at them at 11, 12, 13, and they're little, they're kids. And the things that I was doing, you know, and was being allowed to do, it was really scary for me. You know, I don't, I don't have hard feelings toward my mom. I'm not like, I can't believe she did that to me. But, you know, I understand she was in her own, her own issues. And, you know, I don't don't want to call her a drug addict, but she kind of was a drug addict. (laughs) And she had a real hard life and she used substances to deal with that. wasn't until I was a teenager she really was able to address that
0: yeah I mean it's something that we both understand and I so relate to looking at like I mean when I was 11 12 13 like well I've seen the pictures (laughs) It was on, it was on. And, but I look, I look at what's weird. And I don't know if you have this experience, but I was not what, whatever the 13 year old equivalent that I see around girl. I wasn't that like I was young. I was obviously that, but what 13 looks like on other people is not what 13 looks like on me. And it's, It's really weird to see, but you see what it is emotionally. Like you look at them and you're like, yes, I looked different, but like, I can see what you are emotionally and what I should have been like where, you know, we should have been at 13 was just so far gone. It was just that it's pretty wild when you see it now.
1: Yeah. It's terrifying. I mean, my, my fiance, she has two daughters and you know, one is about to be 14. The other one's 11. And, you know, I mean, she's 13 and she doesn't look 13. But like you said, emotionally, you can see it like, oh, you're a child still, so, right? And you have developed enough to have developed your own persona and you're striving for independence and all these things. But like, ultimately, you haven't developed enough to be able to achieve any of those things, in a not just in a meaningful way, but in like a positive way. Like you're, you're craving attention in any way you can get it. And and so was I. And, you know, the attention I was getting was negative. And, and that was enough because I was getting something.
0: Was it all negative, the attention you were getting? Like your friends, it sounded like you had this... You know, Dogtown esque group. You had the girls. You had like it sounded like it was, as far as a the dark side. This was the positive side of the dark side. Was not not the case.
1: Oh no, it totally was. I mean, look, it, where I grew up, it, you could surf, skate, fight, fuck, or use. Right, and those are the ways that you kind of got respect and I could do all of those. <laughs> so I just, you know, so there was, you know, positive reinforcement from people in my neighborhood, from from people, but not from everyone. Like, it's easy for me to say like, oh, everyone did that. And everyone felt that way. But like, there were a lot of kids who were like, that's not a good idea. You know, I have some really good friends from that era who were not good kids, but they just weren't bad kids. And they went on to live, you know, their lives in a positive way. And they took things seriously as far as school and their family future. And, and interestingly enough, they all became best friends of my brother, like my brother. And them, they all became like this group of friends. And I went with, you know, the other friends who were doing what I was doing because, you know, you need a lower companion. Even if you're the lowest of the companions, you need some people who are similar to you. You, know, you want to be a good basketball player, you got to hang out with a bunch of good basketball players. You want to be a good drug addict? You need some or good drug addicts.
0: addicts. Yep. And you like, I think also when you're that age, I don't know, I hear about people who are like functional and functional drug addicts, functional alcoholics. And for me having started using so young, like that was my one focus. I had never, I wasn't like focused on jobs or focused on like it. So it was the way that I knew how to use was very singularly focused. This is my entire life. And I I think that, takes you down a lot faster than if you're like trying to juggle things like at a certain point you just stop trying to juggle you just focus on your using
1: a hundred percent at the age that i started at i hadn't developed like a, a realistic dream right like at eight or nine you're like i want to be a scientist but you have no idea what that even looks like or like what sciences you would actually pursue
0: <laughs> <Science>
1: like, <laughs> i want to be an astronaut like oh okay well there's a lot of work involved in that but at eight or nine you're like i'm pretty sure i just get in that rocket <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) not my problem i'm gonna do that yeah need a helmet and make a roll but you know, at twelve, thirteen, when you're you could be developing like this sense of self and an idea of who you want to be. You know, for me, I, I was drinking and using at a at a rate that like that was out the window. I already knew who I was going to be. I was going to be a fuck up, and I was good with it.
0: And your brother, he was not.
1: My brother was so singularly focused from the time he was eight years old. First time he got on a surfboard, he's like, "This is it." And you know, he had his bumps along the way, right? He, he grew up where we grew up, and there was you know that bled into his life as well, but, but not in the way that it did for me. And for him, surfing was the only thing he ever wanted to do. It was the future that he wanted. And he worked really hard at it from the very beginning. You know, when we were, when we were little, like he was eight, nine years old, they didn't even make wetsuits for people that small back then, you know, now you can buy a wetsuit anywhere for anybody. But back then, like they didn't have wetsuits for eight year old and my mom wouldn't buy them one. We didn't have any money. And so, cause they had to be specially made. It was like a big deal. And so in the winter he was like, I'm going to surf. And so he put on like three pairs of pants a bunch of shirts and sweaters because he thought this will keep me warm and went and paddled out into the ocean and almost drowned because this <laughs> <was laughs> just weighed down by cloth right and, uh and that's when my mom was like okay fine <laughs> And got him a wetsuit and that allowed him to just pursue, you know, his dream. And he did. And he became a pro surfer. And he he works for the World Surfing League tour as a commentator. He's, you know, he just got back from Portugal and, he, and that's what he does. He sits in the water and talks about surfing and hangs out with his friends and surfs all day. And I'm like, how the fuck did you
0: do that? I his job to me, I see I always see him in a different part of the world, just like in the most beautiful water, hanging out. And I'm like, what am I doing? How do like that's a job. It's amazing.
1: I mean, obviously, I am completely jealous on every level. I'm just like, ah, you got to be kidding me, right? But if not me, at least it's my brother, right? And so I'm really proud of him and really really just so happy for him because you know, I'm not sure what would have happened without serving, right? Like, who does he become? What happens? We don't know. But he... Got this really wonderful life as a result of a lot of hard work. And so it's nice to see that he still gets to reap the benefits. And, you know, he's married to a wonderful woman. They have three wonderful little boys. And, well, they're not little. Well, one's about to be 15. He's six feet tall. You know, he's a fucking giant with a mustache. But yeah, you know, he has a great life and I'm really happy for him. But, you know, separate from me, he... I think in some ways, too, I was just having this conversation, actually, with someone you know as the older sibling and getting in so much trouble and doing things the wrong way pretty much every way i think my brother looked at adam and was like yeah i'm not doing that what <laughs> <laughs> no part in that
0: Like, I'm, oh, that's the option. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, but you didn't get sober until you were 26. So, from 14 to 26, that's a long time to get really good at using drugs and alcohol. Were you, what were you doing in that span?
1: Well, I mean, what was I doing? It's funny because it's such a hard thing for me to really recall specifically. I mean, I think, you know, someone was telling me, you know, a traumatic response to like childhood trauma is that you don't have a lot of like specific. Memories of your childhood—it's an overarching memory, and so like, yeah, it was good. But to kind of like I said with like with my mother when she would go back, even with the good memories, they were tied to difficult memories, and so even the good memories weren't good to think about. And so what was happening was I was just drinking and using and doing a lot of really dumb things with my friends, and you know, taking on a life of of a petty criminal, like n- by no means a hardened criminal. You know, I was more like I was just kind of a little piece of shit. I just I fucked over the people that trust me that loved me. I took advantage of that and used it to my benefit. You know, I tried to sell drugs once or twice. Both times I did all of them and then owed a bunch of money and it was just a mess. And so I, I was in and out of my house from 15 to in my 20s. You know, my mom would just get tired of it. She had, actually, when I was 14, my mom put an extra deadbolt on the door and she wouldn't give me a key. And so when she went to bed, she would lock that deadbolt. And if I was inside, I got to sleep in my house. And if I wasn't, then I had to sleep outside. So, you know, my response to that was I just put a blanket outside because I knew I wasn't going to come home. I knew I wasn't going to make it back. You know, I had a 3 a.m. curfew when I was 13 years old and I never made it. Up. I was 13 years old. I should not have been out of the house, let alone out doing what I was doing in the middle of the night. And, you know, so 14, 15, 16, I, that was all high school. And I was one of those students. I, you know, I figured out real quickly kind of what a teacher needed for me to pass and I would give them just that. I missed a lot of school, but I would show up on test days and I would do just enough to get by. And you know, so they couldn't get rid of me, but they certainly didn't want to keep me. But you know, I was also one of those kids, if I was in class, I was engaged. Whatever we're talking about, let's talk about it. I'm interested. This is interesting to me. Like I actually like to learn and I like knowledge, but it conflicts with the person that I need you to think I am. Right. I don't I can't be the nerdy smart kid. I need to be, you know, I need to be the drug addict badass. And I'm not a badass at any level. But if I can present that in a way, you know, if I can, in so many ways, kind of dictate you know, how you see me, I curate my image in a way that you see me a certain way, then we're good. And, and being a smart kid did not mesh with that in any way. So
0: I ended up at continuation school. Which is a lot of fun, by the way. I had so much fun at continuation school.
1: So my continuation school, it took over what was my grammar school. So my, my grade school closed a few years after I left. My brother was in the last year there. And then my continuation school took over that school. So in 12th grade, I walked into my sixth grade classroom, right, like, oh, look at me, I'm killing it at life. Look at how far I've come. And the teacher, came later on when I went to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, my teacher was the main speaker from that class. And he had, at the time he had three years. So when I was in school, he was loaded. He had his coffee cup.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, about right.
1: Yeah, And I had my shit. Right. And I was like, that's so continuation school.
0: It's so, I mean, we had, I look back and I'm like, how did that even work? We started school at 10 AM. We were out at three. We had smoke breaks. We were in high school. Like we weren't legally allowed to smoke, but we had full on smoke breaks and we would go and smoke with our teachers. And like, I did blow in one of the classrooms and like, I just, it's, I look back, it was so fun, but I don't know how that like continuation school is just
1: wild. I mean, I loved it because you did not have to do any work. As long as you were sitting in class, you got credit and you were, I was blowing through classes. Like I was finishing classes like four to eight weeks. So by the time I was halfway through my 12th grade year, I was done with school and you they're like, early? Oh yeah. <laughs> the they're IRB. like, Do you want to go back to your regular high school? And I was like, for what? Like, why the fuck would I go there? I'm done. So at sixteen, I'm done with high school. All of 12th grade specifically, I did a lot of hallucinogenics. Like that was like, I was heavy into a lot of LSD. I would do it all the time. I had a friend at school who sold it. I would show up every other day with, you know, five bucks and get a tab of acid. And then be by myself. I wasn't doing this with other people. Like I wasn't like hanging out and doing much drugs. I was just like, I'm going to do this and then I'll go see what happens. And so that was most of 12th grade. And like I said, I finished early. And so at 16, I'm like, freedom. And my mom's like, that's not how this works. (laughs) Right? You still live in my house. You need to go to college, get a job. Something's got to happen. And I was like, "Mm, I don't think I'm gonna. And she was like, cool. So you can leave. And so that's what I did. And by leave, (laughs) I took my bag of clothes my Star Wars sleeping bag. I'm 16, but I this is what I'm rolling with. I go downstairs in the apartment building that I grew up in. It's this giant apartment building. And there's this little area under this stairwell with this little door. I move in under the stairwell. Like I'm living under the stairwell. I went, you know, a couple hundred feet is literally what I did. But I was living on my own in my mind. You know, I had no food, no bathroom, nothing.
0: How long did you live under the stairs?
1: I was there for a few weeks until someone found my stuff. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah but I was living large. It was so small though that I couldn't, I couldn't actually lay flat. I had to like sleep on my side with my legs pinned up. Like it was real small. But at the time, I had the freedom to just go out, do all the shit I wanted to do, whatever it was. I could come home, not come home, didn't matter. And then I just had a space for my stuff. And that's all I needed, you know? And from 16 to 26, I would say nothing happened. (laughs) I just kept doing the same dumbass shit. The only thing I will say is that in that period, when I was about 18, one of my friends gave me a job as an electrician. I was complaining about my mom wanting me to get a job, this, that, and the other. And he's like, well, you can come to work for me. And uh, he was one of my best friends. He was a couple of years older than me. And and he had a kid on the way. That's why he started working. I think he turned it around. And so I I went to work for him and I learned a trade from him. That served me my entire life from that moment forward. Like having that, even when I wasn't showing up or I wasn't capable of getting to work, like I had that ability to go to work and make money and not, you know, die in the street in so many ways. And... And he also let me live with him and his family three separate times, like literally wife, kids, and me. And he just never gave up on me. And and I've told him this a million times, but like, if it wasn't for him, I, I 100% would be dead, you know, not just giving me a job, but giving me a place, giving me. Something that felt like home, giving me love. I mean, my mom loved me unconditionally. And I always knew that, but we butted heads in a real way. And, you know, this dude just always gave me a place to land. And in some ways that was bad. (laughs) There's a reason I made it to 26 instead of getting my shit together or dying in my late teens, early twenties. I had this enabler.
0: Why did you decide to get sober?
1: You know, it's interesting because I've been asked this question before and every time I talk about it, it's like, you know, there wasn't anything specific that happened, right? It wasn't any different like, that day than any other day. There were a couple of things that kind of came together prior to. I had moved into an apartment with a couple of my friends and it was around the corner from a treatment center in Santa Monica and across the street from there, every Tuesday night at eight o'clock or eight 30, whatever it was, there was an meeting, and there was also a liquor store situated right next to all of that like kind of in catty corner and all of that and i would apparently be buying alcohol every tuesday around (laughs) eight o'clock so I would see my friend, I would see people I knew at this meeting and they would wave at me and I would just, I you know, flip them the bird. I was like, I, I don't have time for this. You guys, your life sucks. You know, I don't, I'm, I feel sorry for you. But that was a, a couple months prior to when I actually got sober was I moved in that house and that began to happen. So I knew where there was a meeting and I knew there were people there that I knew. I had no intention of going to that meeting. I wasn't like, Oh, I want to go to AA. I wasn't even on my radar. But eventually, when that time came, I knew where I could go. And so a couple of months later, I'm out with my friend and we're doing what we do. And we end up back at this woman's boat. She sells drugs. And I've been on this boat. I I don't even know how many times, not a lot of times, but enough times. And I'm sitting inside and I'm, I'm drinking warm Bud Light. Smoking cigarettes. I'm playing solitaire with real cards, it's free computers. And my friend's outside. He's sanding the boat to get us more drugs, but I can't go outside because the air hurts my skin. I, I'm just like, Oh, I can't yeah, I can't be out there. You <laughs> know, the salt air. I don't know what it is, but I, I can't do it right? I've been up for however many days. I think it was about three days at that point. And I remember the sun would come up and you could look out the little porthole and there was a guy that lived on the boat next to this woman. And he would come out in the morning and he would sit on his deck and he had his little robe and he would read his paper and drink coffee. And I always used to think like this poor fucking dude lives on a boat. <laughs> what a bummer for this guy. Like what, what happened to your life that this is what happened for you? And that was always my thought. And I would see other people getting up and doing when they're like walking their dogs. And I just always felt sorry, them. I'm like, oh, you're normal, boring fucking lives. I'm over here at party, right? Like I'm just living the life of Riley. And this one evening or morning, I should say, this whole occurrence happened. And I looked at him and I, I remember thinking to myself, that I, I had it all wrong and that the person that was really suffering and the person that was living this like really awful existence was me. And like, it, it fucks me up every time I talk about it. Cause it was like so profound. Like I just finally, the perspective just changed that moment of clarity, that, that little window of seconds and inches, all the bullshit you hear in AA meetings, like that happened for me. I literally looked out that window at something I'd seen before and, and it was different. And it wasn't that the scene was different. It was that I couldn't lie to myself. Anymore, like I couldn't like pretend like I was doing well or enjoying myself. I was none of those things true. I was miserable. And I was in so much pain. And I just made the decision, you know, I wasn't like, oh, let's go. I, you know, I finished out what, whatever we were doing. <laughs> I wasn't like, <laughs> hey, let's bail. I was like, well, whatever's left, let's, you know, let's <laughs> keep going until we can't. And the next day was a Tuesday and that's when the meetings was, and or I mean, there were meetings everywhere all the time, but it was the one I knew about and it was the one I was going to, I was like, I'm going to go to the, it's, it's a block from my house. Like I don't have any excuse. And I walked over to that meeting and, uh, and that was, that was the journey. That was March 3rd. I don't count it as my day because I smoked weed that day. So I count the next day, March 4th, 1997, as my Friday date. And, you know, like I said, it wasn't some traumatic event. It wasn't anything different or special. It was that I just couldn't lie to myself anymore. And, and once I admitted to myself that I was so unhappy and in so much pain, like the doors were open and I there was no way to close those doors again. You know, and I, and I knew that and I knew that something had to change.
0: Did you feel, I mean, I know for me, I felt like an, a closeness to people that was different than I had ever experienced before when I came into the program particularly with the persona, like the I had to be the badass, I had to be the tough kind of deal. Did you feel that that was, that you were able to melt some of that when you went into the program that unexpectedly?
1: Yes, definitely. I definitely feel that way. I think the biggest reason for that for me was less about the people. I mean, that was definitely a part of it. But I also, you know, I didn't know that you could just hang out at meetings and just fuck around for a while before you got your shit together and decided to get a sponsor and work the steps. Like I didn't know that was even possible or I would have. And then I would have got loaded and left. Right. Like I know 100% that's what would have happened. But you know, that group of people, when I walked in, you know, they were like, Hey, here's what we do. And the steps were a part of that. Like, they weren't like, Hey, you have the option. They were like, you need a sponsor and you need to work the step. And that's what you have to do. Cause that's what we all do. And if you ain't doing that, then there's no reason to be here. Like, don't fucking waste our time. You know, they were like very old school AA, like, yeah, fuck all that. You know, that hanging out shit, you can do that somewhere else. I got sponsor on day two and I was working the steps on day three. And that really made the biggest difference.
0: Working the steps.
1: Getting to that process allowed all, a lot of that stuff to melt away, kind of like you were talking about. Like, I, you know, there was no way for me to be completely humble and honest about my alcoholism. And I went to AA because it was there. If there would have been an NA meeting, we'd be talking about, you know, me being clean as opposed to being sober. It, but to me, they're all interchangeable. And I can I can walk into literally any meeting of any type, right? And qualify right whether it's
0: A A C A N A,
1: you know
0: i think the only one i like really don't qualify for is gambling because i'm like i'm not a gambler but like other than that
1: yeah i mean i i was able to quit gambling i wasn't ever a big gambler you know it's hard to gamble when you're poor <laughs> you have nothing you're like oh, i want to gamble but i have nothing so I never really got super into that, but,
0: uh, <laughs> it's, it's the only problem when you're losing.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I never really got into meth. I mean, I did it a, a handful of times, but like, I like smoke crack. <laughs> people who smoke crack don't do meth and people who do meth don't smoke crack. They're like the sharks and the jets. You know what I mean? It's like West side story, but without all the singing and dancing, it's just a bunch of people hiding out in their apartments, <laughs> looking for people in their windows. Yeah, yeah. They're both doing the same thing. Fucking looking outside.
0: It's okay. So you work the steps and you stayed, I mean, you've stayed sober a long time. You've grown up as I have grown up in the program. And and Southern California is a very special AA community. It's and very we all know a lot of each other, even all (laughs) all over Southern California. Did you do any treatment? Did you do any therapy? Was there any talk about that in the next however? Like, no, okay.
1: No, I didn't, I didn't go to treatment. You know, the only experience I had with therapy. It was when I was 13, my mom took me to a therapist with her and the therapist agreed with me. On some of the stuff that was happening, and my mom got up and left. She's like, Oh, we're out. She's like, This ain't working. <laughs> I'm not paying for this.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I, I had no experience with therapy. I didn't do that, especially early on. Like, you know, and, and to be honest with you, the steps were enough in the beginning, right? I worked the step. It took me a while to get through all twelve because my first couple sponsors relapsed while I was in the process. My first sponsor had three years. He relapsed when I had finished my four step, and so I didn't get to finish it with him. And then I, I asked another guy who had 10 years, and he, you know, he was one of those guys that talked like this and everything's going to be okay and you know as long as you trust God and I couldn't stand him so I was like I'm going to have this dude sponsor me and I got to a four step and he relapsed as well and I was like okay well, this is what's happening and uh, I was actually finally able I asked another gentleman who at the time had uh I think like 13 14 years and we were able to finish the process but it took me about a year and a half to actually get through all as well but in
0: You're that the I, movie good luck Chuck
1: yeah no <laughs> I legitimately thought I was like the black widow of AA. Like, if I ask you to sponsor me, you're loaded. I think I might even have like prefaced that with the third guy. Like, hey, listen, so I'm not sure you're going to get through this process, but I'd like to. You
0: <laughs> might die. Yeah.
1: And he did relapse, but much later, and he was not my sponsor at the time.
0: Just for the record. Let yeah, the record so I take
1: no credit for that.
0: One. Oh, my God. It was a delayed response. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community and I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70-plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the LionRock Rock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code courage. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code courage to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. It's awesome that you got into the steps right away. I think it's easy to not do that, not do the work and then be like, this is weird. You people are weird. (laughs) You people talk about God way too much. I'm out. One thing that's interesting about you, so I can't remember how old you are, but I think I think I know. Fifty-one. Fifty-one. You're fifty-one and you're engaged, getting married for the first time, right? And one of the things that was always interesting to me—I've known you a long time—and one of the things that was always interesting to me was how you never really had a serious romantic relationship over the course of those years. Like it just—I mean, there were some, but you never really had like serious relationships and that it's unusual. And I wondered, obviously that's changed what changed for you in order to do the work, to be able to connect and be able to have that vulnerability.
1: Well, what changed? I mean, it was, More of a drastic thing than uh, when I actually got sober. I had about 18 years sober after a rough four or five months of really poor behavior and just engaging in the things that I had always engaged in. You know, I used sex as intimacy. I equated that with like being intimate with someone, which it is, it's a physical act, but I never connected with anybody on like a real level. I mean, I was able to develop deep friendships with people, maybe after the fact or during or whatever that process was, but it was never like we should be together it was always separate you know but i i just always use sex in that way like and i could tell you what the problem was i could tell you about my dad abandoning me i could tell you about my stepdad not being a part of my life my mom's failed marriages the idea of when i was growing up and where i grew up with like the more people you slept with the more kind of cred that you got like i could tell you all of the things and then my first real relationship at 21 i was with this girl for two years and all she did was cheat on me and it like just Destroyed me, you know and then you know my first sober relationship i was six months sober and she left and it wrecked me and so at that point i was like i'm done and i could tell you everything that led up to that space but i could you know i could never internalize it like the feelings i wouldn't address i could just kind of give you the information and then that was that and there was no there's no feelings attached to it because if i felt it (laughs) we were gonna have to feel some stuff and at 18 years sober that stuff just, it like, I couldn't stuff anymore in there. <laughs> like, it was full. And it wasn't just full. It was ready to come out. And it just fucking exploded.
0: When did your mom passed away in? 2012. 2012. So how long after was this? It
1: was about three years later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was in 2015 and like I said, everything just you know there was no way for me to to hide it anymore and I, I had a pretty severe emotional break is what happened. you know at the time I was still doing construction work, I've worked in recovery off and on since 2002, but at the time I was just doing construction and, you know, I was going to work and having to go get in my car and cry. Like I couldn't hold it together. Like I just couldn't fucking keep it inside. And it was just like coming out and coming out in these waves. And I was just, I never felt anything like that. I just never felt that level of sadness and sorrow and pain. I was in so much pain. And I remember... You know, after a couple of days, I, I don't know how to function. And I call my sponsor. He's an old man. He's got like 30 years. Love him. And he's like, so let's write a four step about it. And I was like, that ain't it. Like a four step isn't gonna get me where I need to be with this. Like,
0: how did you know that though? So, like, like how did you know, or I should say, did you know when you were like it was coming up? It right? Did you know what it was? Was it just like you were just like something's happening and it's not related to AA?
1: Yeah, no, I, I was very clear that it was not AA related. It had nothing to do with my alcoholism. It was an emotional bottom of the nature that. The steps just weren't gonna address. And how did I know that? I just knew, I just, I had done enough of four steps. I'd been through the steps enough times myself. I'd taken other guys through it. I know what, I have a pretty good grasp on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just knew, I was like, this ain't it. This is one of those outside issues. This is something that like, this work will not address in a meaningful manner. I could have wrote a four step and I could have probably did just enough to get through it and get back to like the behaviors. But I just knew that that wasn't gonna solve anything. I've been sober long enough, and been through enough shit that I was like, I want to do something about this. I want this. I want to address this in a meaningful manner because I know that if I don't, I will end up here again. Yeah. Yep. And so I called. It's funny. I have a really good friend who lives. He lives in Connecticut now, but he he was in Boston at the time. And you know, I'd known him for a very long time, sober guy that I met, and called him because I knew, you know, I could trust him, and I believed in him. And he told me about this place called OnSite. And then I called another gentleman who I knew who had gone through something real similar. Like he had a bunch of time, had relapsed, got back together with his wife and then did some stupid ass shit. And so he was like, yeah, I went to this place called OnSite. (laughs) And so I'm getting these two people who I love and trust who are telling me, this is an option for you. And this is something you should do. It's time for you. And it's funny because, you know, I'm having this conversation with both of them and my other friend and they're like, yeah, well, we were kind of waiting until you know, you were ready. Like we all knew this was coming. <laughs> We all understood this is like eventually you were going to get to this place. And but they also knew enough that they couldn't get me there, right? They couldn't have helped me along in the process. Like it had to happen the way that it happened, it had to be through my own actions and my own behaviors. So I talked to both of them, and they both said the same thing. And I was like, I mean, it feels like this is probably what I should do. And you know, they called for me, they basically did the whole thing for me. You know, they're like, they're going to send That's you some paperwork. Big deal,
0: though. People don't, you know, you say that and I know what that means, but like for people who are listening, who don't know what that means to so like, it's a process like to call, there's a lot of stuff to do. And so it's really nice when people, like if you have a friend or something that you can help with that process, it's really overwhelming when you're in that like breakdown state to like call and manage all of the intake stuff.
1: I couldn't have done it to be honest. If they were like, just call here, it would have never happened. But because they had a relationship with, with on site, both of them had continued to have a relationship and had been to other things there following their initial, you know, contact with them. They were able to have those conversations for me and get it all set up. They actually scholarshiped me like 80%, 90% of the, of the cost. And, and then unbeknownst to me, my friend called some other friends and they all pitched in and paid the last bit because I didn't have anything. I didn't have. You know, I just didn't have the weight. you know, I, I couldn't get, I couldn't leave work for a month. Like I was like, I, you know, I had all these reasons why I couldn't go away 30 days. They took all those reasons away. They just, they stripped it all away. They're like, yeah, well, and then they paid for an airfare. And then two days later, I was on an airplane and on my way to Tennessee.
0: Tennessee. What did you discover there?
1: It's funny. because like I, like I said, like to me, it was all like sex and intimacy. That's my problem. That's where it all lies. That's, you know. And I remember sitting down initially with the psychiatrist who sat down, we, we sat down for about two hours and she's like, so tell me about your trauma because they're really trauma focused more than anything else. And uh, she's like, so tell me about, you know, your trauma. And I was like, no, I don't have any trauma. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and, and what it was, was that the way that I grew up and the people I grew up around and the life that I lived, like we normalized a lot of the things that we experienced. And if enough people have experienced it, then it, it's not abnormal. But if you tell that story to some normal person, any of those stories are like dude what the fuck like it, they they're like dude that's not that's not normal i'm like what do you mean like everyone it happens to everybody and none of your friends have ever been stabbed you've never been shot at not once right like what right and so two hours later she's just scribbling as i'm telling her kind of like you know my story and she just has a list <laughs> she's like so these are traumas and i was like okay you know, and what I discovered was that I had just never dealt with any of the stuff throughout my life from the very beginning, right? Like you, you don't want to think like, oh, I have this trauma around my dad not being there. I didn't even know. Him, who gives a fuck, right? But like, what that does to you as a child and how you. You know, the coping mechanisms you develop at four, five, six years old, they don't work when you're 45 years old. I know it's weird, but they're a little underdeveloped for like where you are 40 years later. But you but don't have
0: anything else.
1: I've been using these, these set of skills I've been using since I was a teenager. I developed them all within like a 10-year period and, and I just ran with them. And so what I I found out was that one, that's not normal Two, my life was not normal. And a lot of the things that I went through were really traumatic. And if I didn't address those in a meaningful way, they were going to continue to dictate my life
0: how did they play into your protection with regard to relationships? Like when they looked at those things, it was like, people aren't, was it people aren't safe? People are just not safe.
1: Yes. Relationships are painful. Every relationship has caused me pain and I don't want to feel pain. (laughs) I mean, my whole life I've avoided pain right? like in some way or another, like, you know, I didn't start drinking and using because I was in pain, you know, in a conscious way. But the first time after I had drank or used. I had a feeling. I was like, oh, I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> and then, and that's a whole lifetime of doing that. Then I get sober, but behaviors, there's still behaviors I can use. And that's what I did. Right. And so I use sex. I used this faux intimacy. I used some other things as well. And I also, I kind of prided myself on the fact that like a lot of people were like, yeah, I always found you really unapproachable.
0: I, I, it's so funny because I like didn't know you had feelings until you got mad at me. <laughs> I was, I was like you have like you like you're so unfazed by everything so it seemed and it's interesting you know looking at their story yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> that hurt and i was mad because that's how no, I, know no, I, I everything I, right and i'm hurt so fuck you instead of fuck man that really hurt me
0: but i wouldn't what it, what was interesting and what speaks to like the growth is like I wouldn't have known that. Like I wouldn't have, you carried yourself, like you just said, you carried yourself in a way that was, I don't know if the word's unapproachable, but I guess unapproachable, but more like just unaffected unaffected, not high, not low, not going to give you much like other than intellect. And it's interesting how that was part of that, right? Because it's like the personality, like, right. It shapes our personality. Years. I mean, I
1: I developed that as a kid because I got my feelings hurt a bunch as a little kid. I'm super sensitive, just like every other dude and every other person, right? I'm super sensitive, but I developed a way to let it look like you didn't affect me. I had all these things that I was really ashamed of and really embarrassed by, but that, wasn't going to be the thing that got to me you weren't going to get to me that way and so i developed that early on and you know i, I never smile <laughs> i never smiled back then i just i made sure that like you just and even if it did i would never allow you that because then you could do it again i mean look even today my emotional state is pretty even keeled almost at all times even like you know, I was like, so am with my girl and we're going to Costa Rica. She's like, "Are you excited?" I was like, "Yeah,
0: yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah."
1: yeah. This is cool. I'll be, you know, I'll be happier when we're actually there. I don't really want to be on the, you know, there's always like a I could be, you know, and I don't get, you know. Yesterday, she asked me something and was like, "Are you mad at me?" I was like, "Have you ever seen me mad? Like for real?" She's like, "No." <laughs> well,
0: it's it's the not up and not down, right? Because like I think a lot of us are used to big big ups, big downs. And, and it's a very like, you know, you mastered like no ups, no downs, like very even keeled, which I mean, frankly is sometimes a lot better than the like crazy up and crazy down. Right. Like
1: I I usually date those, but
0: But you know, it's like, you can't get it right. But so you go to onsite and you come out of there and what happens from there?
1: It was the first time in my life I actually had like real anxiety. Like I never really experienced that. And I, you know, the whole time I was there, I wanted to leave. Right? <laughs> then it was time to go. I was like, I don't want to leave. Can I stay longer? Please never let me leave the safety of this. You know, They put my phone back in my hand. I was like, oh, fuck. right? Because I knew that thought, that connection. I came back to L.A you know, I would wake up in the morning, like 6am fucking vibrating, just like so anxious. And I didn't know what it was because I'd never dealt with anxiety. So I drink a bunch of coffee because it's morning and that's what you do. Now I'm fucked. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know how to function my heart what's happening. So a couple of days in I stopped drinking coffee. I was like, I don't even need that. I'm awake. And, uh, and what happened was that's when, when I came back, I really leaned on Alcoholics Anonymous, to be honest with you. And I leaned on men's meetings. I had never been a fan of men's meetings. Like I hated them. There's no one in this room I want to fuck. Why the fuck would I be here? You know what I mean? Like there's no one to impress. These dudes are trying to talk about like some real shit. I, I never enjoyed it. And uh, I found a men's meeting in Venice that I started attending and it it was so helpful for me, you know, because it gave me a space to feel safe. And I was hearing what they were saying in a different way. And it allowed me to say what was really going on for me in in a meaningful way. And, uh, you know, AA became kind of like a touchstone for me in a lot of ways. Again, you know, one more time, it, it was like that space where I could go and be honest and be vulnerable and be real, kind of like I had when I was a newcomer. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the ego invested in having 18 years and being the guy that everyone wants, you know, Hey, will you speak to my maiden? Hey, will you sponsor? Like all that cool shit. Like every time I've been super cool in AA, I wanted to fucking die. Five years, eight years, 13 years, 18 years, like it just kept happening. I would just get to this place where like I was somebody and then I would figure out real quickly that I was fucking dying inside uh, because I wasn't being honest and open and off because I wasn't being true to myself and working an actual program. I just was leaning on the fact that like people thought I was something. So at 18 years, I was able to get back into the, to the rooms in a meaningful way and, and have that safety place. And I ended up going to New York to visit a friend of mine who I had been in onsite with or milestones. It's called milestones at onsite. Onsite is like week long milestones is long term, whatever. So I went to visit her in New York. She's an older woman who is just a, a wonderful woman she, out of her mind. I love her so much. And she invited me to come to New York and visit her. And so I did. And I ended up meeting her son-in-law, her then son-in-law. And he was telling me kind of like about this thing that he was trying to create. He was trying to open this treatment center in New York City and all this other stuff. And I was like, that's awesome, man. Good luck, right? I didn't think anything of it. We just had lunch. And about a week later, I was back in LA and, and he called me. And was like, hey, man, I'd love it if you would come out. I don't know if you're interested. I know, you you know, you said you might possibly want to live in New York at some point. He's like, I want to start a sober living in conjunction with what I'm doing just to kind of get the ball rolling and get us established. Would you want to come out, run my sober living, You'll live in it, you know, until we can figure out something different and I'll pay you this amount of money. And it was actually more than I was making at the time. And it had housing and it was in New York City, a place that I love. And so a month later, <laughs> I moved to New York. And when I was there, this gentleman also was, he had the wherewithal to be like, look, you're going to be working with all these people and all these fucking, you know, drug addicts and alcoholics. He's like, I really want you to go to therapy and I'm going to pay for it. And, you know, I had had a couple months where I had been out of on-site, didn't have a therapist. And so I started seeing this guy, this amazing older gay guy that lived in the village. He was just, just such a special, special man. And I was able to start to continue some of the work that I had begun when I was at OnSite. And without that piece, it wouldn't, you know, I would have fallen. But like being back in LA within like six weeks, I was already like kind of, you know, putting out feelers, you know, hitting up. Hey, what's up, man? Haven't seen you in a while. Or hey, girl, what's up? You know, just like coming, like starting to go back into these behaviors. Then I left, went to New York. And I really just looked at that like, this is an opportunity for me to just put all of that away. I don't have to be any of those things. And there's no expectations from anyone here because no one knows me as that person. So I just got this like incredible opportunity to have a fresh start. And I took full advantage of it. You know, I started being honest with this, this man and you know, he would bring up my mom and I'd be like, I don't know why we're talking about her. She's a fucking saint. And then, you know, it's like, all right, well, we'll talk about her when you're ready. And then eventually I was ready. And we had, you know, real meaningful conversations about, you know, the fact that if she wasn't perfect, if she wasn't a saint, if she wasn't everything I needed in a mom, that meant I was unsafe as a child. And I had to admit that. And I had to admit that she had faults and that that all of those feelings of being unsafe and, and not feeling taken care of were actually real. And so then I could actually deal with those feelings, you know, however many decades later.
0: Did it feel wrong to talk about that, especially after she wasn't here? Like,
1: oh, yeah. I mean, that was the biggest thing. I was like, well, I don't know why we're going to talk about her. First of all, she's not here, right? I don't talk about I'm like, She's gone. And she was everything I needed her to be my whole life because she's all I ever had.
0: Right. And if she like, wasn't like, that, You're not going to criticize what the only thing you had.
1: Yeah. And if she wasn't enough, then that means shit was really fucked up. And having to admit that, it felt like I was like besmirching her legacy in some way, right? And But, you know, the truth is that she could have faults and have done things wrong. And she could also be a really kind, loving woman who was really important in my life, right? It can be both. And so I got to do that. And I was with it. I was with it for... About a year until finally he he was like, I feel bad taking your money, man. Like you're in a good spot. And like, I don't think you need therapy right now. And I, you know, I don't know how many therapists you've ever been to, but I've never heard somebody be like, yeah, you're done. I don't think you should come here anymore. Like he wasn't about to just take my money. He was like, you're in a good place. You know, my number and I will always be here. But like this time, bro. And I was like, okay. And you know, interestingly, and a couple of things that just happened, right? sober living closed, So I didn't have a place to live and no money. I decided to stay in New York. I went to grad school. I had gotten accepted and was about to start grad school. And I had just started dating my now fiance.
0: Your soon-to-be wife is very famous. And you are not a spotlight guy you joke about wanting to be like Dolly Parton's husband. Have there been any struggles that have come up with regard to intimacy with regard to, Oh my gosh, like there's so many, like almost like there's people in our business, that kind of thing.
1: I mean, I knew going into it, I knew that there was going to be attention that I was going to get and i You know, interesting, you know, when I met her, she wasn't working in that field anymore. And so that wasn't something that I had had to deal with when I met her. I just got to meet her and get to know her. And so, you know, that's the only version of her I ever really knew. And so I knew that that was going to have to be a part of it. And, you know, for me, it was just a matter of like becoming okay with the fact that like there was going to be a level of notoriety. People were going to know who I was and I was going to have to deal with some of that stuff. But I also knew that, you know, I don't want to go to all the premieres with her and stand next to her so you know who I am. I'm not trying to, like... That's not a, a part of that like I don't want any part of that life. like I want to support her in every way she I can and if she asks me to come to something I'll go. but she also knows like that's not stuff for me. so and she's real she's really uh, cognizant of that and does her best to to help me you know kind of stay in the background and you know I get tons of loving comments on uh, social media about my appearance and my age and all kinds of fun stuff you know
0: Oh no, really? Oh yeah
1: yeah yeah, especially early on. You know, just another drug addict tattooed loser. (laughs) all of the things you know it was like oh wait hold on you know all of my insecurities and you just decided to bring them all out and mention them on the internet thank you
0: thank you yeah well that's what i mean it's like you're put into like you are such a person who like you don't you know you are the last person on the planet i would think of who wants to be in front of a whole group of people right and so it's a very intense piece to fall in love with someone who, who all that stuff but But yeah, I mean, I personally knowing you a long time, I think it's incredible. And I'm really, really excited. Like, I mean it genuinely that I feel so happy for you that you found love and that you like that you're following through with it. Like you're actually doing it. You're living together. You're going to get married. Like you're doing the thing and it took you a long time, but you're doing it. And I think it's a testament to like the work that we do and that we're ready when we're ready. What is one thing that you are loving about that you're seeing in the mental health recovery field? And what is one thing that concerns you?
1: I would say it's probably really both the same thing. I'm loving the idea that there are other options for recovery and that the 12-step model is not the only model. Um, I think it's effective. It worked for me, but that doesn't mean it's effective for everyone. and, And I think there are a lot of paths to recovery, including, you know, harm reduction is an option. And we need to be willing to have that conversation, you know, MAT, like all of these things are options for people and they need to have, be able to have those conversations, but everybody wants to go to the 12 step model. It's the only thing that works. And all these treatment centers, that's what they work off of. We go to AA meetings and it's like, that's cool. But at the same time, like you're shutting people out from the opportunity to really get what they want, whether it's smart recovery or refuge or going to the church or whatever it is, like there's so many ways to get there. And so I think that is something that I love. Like I love that that is becoming something that people are having conversations with, but there's also the downside, right? Like you get the, I don't want to mention their name, but you know, the California sober thing, right? Like it's dangerous because you're you know what I mean like you're not explaining it in a way that that is understandable it was I know I know that it was their path is their path and I, I wish them all the best I want them to be happy and have a full life but what it did you know and the detrimental effect that it, it had in my opinion this is completely my opinion but you know we have to be willing to have a real conversation about these things but we have to be informed about these things and when we just throw them out there and we just use these stupid fucking terms like California soap like we're hurting people. There's someone somewhere who thought, oh, well then I'm gonna do that. And who knows what happens, right? So I think
0: I was so confused. I'd never heard of this. So I was like, I live here, and
1: I I well, first all, I'm of all, I've never heard of it. California, like, don't put a like. I don't do that. Yeah,
0: I was like, why you why are you putting this on blast? We have a lot of good sobriety here. I don't know what talking about.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think it for me, it's both. I think both sides of that. So it's the one thing is probably the thing I love the most about what's happening in the mental health field, but it's also the thing I think is it's just being done in the wrong way. And a lot of times, right, like people aren't informed enough to have real conversations about it. And so if someone comes to you and it, whether you're a therapist or a psychiatrist or just a friend, and they're like, hey, I'm thinking about harm reduction because I I just haven't been able to get abstinence. And and it's it's killing me. The shame is killing me. And I, I just, I need to find some way to deal with what's happening right now. And it's like, oh, harm reduction. If you don't know about it and you can't have a meaningful conversation about it, you could just really hurt somebody and send them on a tailspin they may never recover from. And so I would say it's both sides of that same subject
0: i like it i like it good mescal i adore you thank you so much for being here i appreciate it and i would normally ask people to ask you to tell people where to find you but i know that you don't want to be found so <laughs> we'll <do that. laughs>
1: yeah well it's fine i mean you can find me if you really want to just google my name and uh <laughs> and there'll be a bunch of pictures of my girlfriend and then uh every bunch of pictures
0: you like i guess i'm in this
1: yeah I <laughs> not I, even in them half the time just her you know just
0: I saw some pictures you were like I guess I'm going to be in this photo how <laughs> this works i figured as much i figured as much well it's really awesome this podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community, offering over 70 weekly online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs or alcohol, we have space for you. Find the joy in recovery at Lionrock.life.